Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 237 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. How you doing, my friend? Doing well. Doing well. Nice to be back on the podcast with you. Have we done one together this year yet? Maybe it was maybe one. I think once we did. Yeah, maybe once one. we did. So yeah, tells you how um, busy we've been. Yeah, I know. It, I mean, I it know, is right? it is earnings season. I mean, it what is. Do we... Yeah, busy, busy first uh, first it month is of the, the year, time like of the year. Is. Yeah, yes. Um, as always, we're going to quickly review the month to date, which obviously is the year to date performance of the major market indices that we track. This data is from Y charts, and as of January thirty first. S&P 500 index up 1.6% for the month of January. Dow Jones Industrial Average up 1.2%. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 1%. The uh, Russell 2000 Small Cap Index down 3.9%. And the Vanguard All World X United States ETF down 1.7%. Three-month Treasury rate at 5.42%, two-year Treasury rate at 4.27%, and the 10-year Treasury rate at 3.99%. Uh, moving on to big headlines and current events from the week, like you kind of alluded to, Matt, this was a really big week for uh, earnings, especially big tech. So Google, Microsoft, uh, Advanced Micro Devices, Starbucks all reported on Tuesday, and then we have Apple, Amazon, Meta uh, reporting tonight after the market closed. And then in addition to that, we had the Fed holding rates steady yesterday uh, at their meeting. Um, So a lot of uh, a big data filled week, I guess, is the best way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think there's any surprises from the Fed meeting yesterday. No, I don't think so either. Um, Bank of England uh, followed in the Fed's footsteps, it seemed like uh, yesterday. Um, by uh, just leaving rates unchanged for right now. Yeah. Uh, first thing I had for this week, Matt, was a tweet from uh, Bespoke uh, Investment Research. This was on January 25th. Uh, Jenna will throw this up for viewers on the YouTube. Where you can find it in our show notes. Uh, it was a tweet that said the S&P 500 technology sector weight in the index just crossed above 30% for the first time since 2000. So what you're going to see if you're looking on the screen right now is that back right before the tech bubble burst, the technology sector as a percentage of the S&P 500, so how many tech companies are in the S&P 500, got up to just under 35%. And right now is the first time since the early 2000s that we've creeped back over that 30% level regarding tech as a percentage of the S&P 500. In addition to that, Matt, I have another chart from um, a a blog called the Grindstone Intelligence um, that shows the relative strength of the technology sector versus the S&P 500. 
And what listeners and viewers can see on this chart is that technology stocks are making a new all-time relative high versus the broader market. So stocks haven't been at this level since 2000, right? Which is mm-hmm. 24 years ago. Um, so again, I, I I know that I people are probably sick of of, of me talking about it, but. And they're going to be sick of me talking about it again here because my next subject is on this same spectrum is that you shouldn't be afraid of all time highs and you shouldn't be afraid of strength. So, you know, the headline is going to read technology sector makes new all time relative high to the S&P 500. It's never performed this well against the S&P 500. And automatically people are going to think, well, if it's never been this high before, then a drop is imminent. Imminent, um, which could be the case, but it could not be the case. A lot of times we see, you know, things go on to make new all-time highs, and they just keep going up and to the right on the chart. Um, so, really interesting uh, thought that this was probably going to get some airtime on some major media financial outlets. Um, so, just thought it was interesting and wanted to share my thoughts. No, I think it's great. Here's the biggest difference that people need to talk about when they show these two charts. When we go back to the late 90s and the early 2000s, the biggest difference is this. A majority of those companies in tech at that time were not making a profit and their balance sheets were an absolute disaster. And I'll bluntly say it, the reason the dot-com burst occurred is you can only burn through money and lose money for so long before you run out of it. Mm -hmm. And guess what? As they could not break even, people were not going to throw good money after bad. I'm Mm -hmm. oversimplifying it, but that's exactly what occurred. You fast forward to today, you look at a lot of these technology names, what are you seeing? Oh my gosh, they're not only profitable, their balance sheets are amazing. So these are not apples to apples conversations. And if anyone tries to have that conversation with me, I might blow my top. (laughs) And I think it makes sense from a, you know, like a utilization standpoint, right? So back when the U.S. economy was dependent on uh, transportation companies, right? They made up a much larger portion of the U.S. stock market than a lot of other sectors, right? Or a lot of other industries. And I don't think it's any different now is that our economy is so tech dependent that really shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that technology by far is the largest percentage of the pie of the S&P 500. So last comment, look at where the earnings growth is coming from. If right now you are sitting in front of Mark McEvely's screen here at Jessup Wealth Management, he's our chief investment officer, and you're doing screens by sectors of the market, healthcare, finance, just go go down all the sectors. Mark, where's a majority of the earnings growth coming from? Yeah, tech. tech. Shocker. Shocker, money's going into the sector. You know, it's like. It is. So, and I mean, I think you can make an argument today that, that most companies today could somehow, some way be classified as a tech company, right? Because we all use... Everyone wants to be classified as an AI company. Right, right. Yeah, soon, yeah, soon. Every soon Kroger's going to come out and be like, hey, we're AI. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. I'm not trying to pick on Kroger, by the way. I'm just throwing it out there because I went shopping there recently. So yeah, I'd... no, I get it. No, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. Well, you heard it here first. We'll uh, we'll be the first to give you our review on Kroger's first uh, AI tool, which actually would probably be pretty helpful. Now that you probably. say it. Um, next thing I had was a tweet from uh, Ryan Dietrich on December 30th of last year. Ryan says the Russell 2000, which is the small cap index here in the U.S., just gained 12.1% in December, the ninth best month ever. I found 19 other times where the Russell 2000 index was greater than 10% for the year. The index was higher six months later, 90% of the time, and higher a year later, 14 times, and up 15.8% on average. So, and I already said it, but... I want to bang this point home that do it, you know, strength begets strength and people shouldn't be afraid that just because a stock or an index or a sector or an industry had a really good month, that doesn't mean that the next month or the next six months or even the next year has to be negative. A lot of the times actually is positive. So that's something that shouldn't that shouldn't scare people. Um, you know, if we led our lives every single day waiting for the next shoe to drop or waiting for the next market correction and being anxious about that, it wouldn't be good for anybody, right? And and you should treat your, your portfolio the same. Just because something is going up doesn't mean it immediately has to come down. Agreed. And I think if you look at the performance disparity between large and small the last couple of years – small has really underperformed a, a, the large cap indices. Mm -hmm. And I think that has to be noted as well that, you know, um, doesn't mean it's going to happen this year, but sooner rather than later, smalls are going to have their day in the sunshine. Yeah, they will for sure. Uh, last thing was another one from Ryan Dietrich. Uh, I feel like we could uh, almost do an entire podcast with the content that Ryan puts out. So uh, way to go, Ryan. Keep that up, please. Yeah, good stuff. Um, he says, did you know that stocks have gained in a pre-election year and an election year after a negative midterm year every time since 1950? That's Ooh, can 17, you say that again, please? 17 out of what? 17 out of 17 or 100% of the time. Do you really think this streak will end in 2024? So let's break this down again. Ryan does a lot of work on presidential election cycles. So does J.C. Peretz with all-star charts. So do we. Typically what you see is midterm years. So year two of a new presidency tends to be relatively weak for the markets. Year three, or what we all call the pre-election year, tends to be the best year out of the four-year cycle, which was last year. Okay. And now we're in the election year. So again, Ryan says, did you know that stocks have gained in a pre-election year and election year after a negative midterm year every time since 1950? In 2022, we had a negative midterm year. In 2023, we had a very positive pre-election year. So what we're getting to here is history says 2024, this election year could be pretty strong. And you can see in this graphic that it doesn't matter if it's a Democrat in the White House or if doesn't it's a matter. Republican in the White House. Doesn't matter. It's almost one, two. It's almost split like 50-50 almost yeah. or as close as you can get to it, right? So um, 
I'm not saying it's going to be another 20% year, but things don't look too bad when you take this data. Into oh, account. and guess what? We're going to be most likely in a easing interest rate environment as the year goes on. Right. That that doesn't hurt us. Right. Which is just a coincidence, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm telling you, both sides of the aisle do it. They are going to perk up this economy as much as they can, especially in the second half of the year. Make it look good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, well, with that, I'll turn it back over to you. Perfect segue for me. Yeah, I don't know. We don't compare notes on these things. We prep for these podcasts, ladies and gentlemen. And Mark just teased me up perfectly on a beautiful par three. Here we go. <laughs> so the first thing is I'm going to go over one of my concerns in 2024 as the year goes on. It's in regards to the labor market and layoffs. Jenna's going to put up this um, this illustration, this this uh, this ex post by Carl Cantania. He is a uh, news anchor with CNBC, and it is uh, a piece from the Wall Street Journal you're going to see here. And so for our traditional uh, podcast listeners, I'm going to verbalize this. The headline says in big, bold letters, plummeting inflation raises new risk for Fed rising real interest rates. Central bank feels pressure to cut interest rates as falling inflation rises, I'm sorry, raises the real cost of borrowing. And this is the quote that Carl put. The greater risk now is not taking too long to cut rates, causing damage to the labor market that is hard to repair. In November, for example, the hiring rate in the U.S. dropped to its lowest level in 10 years, a sign more companies might feel they're overstaffed. So I'm going to make um, everyone aware here. There have been a lot of layoff announcements so far to start the year, but not sizable ones. There are a couple, but just a lot of them. And I'm going to name a couple just if you're educated. This is what I've found. So Google laying off hundreds of software engineers, Discord hundreds, Citigroup 20,000, Amazon, which bought also MGM Studios and Twitch, hundreds. Nike and Intel would not disclose how many. BlackRock, 3% of staff. Rent the Runway, 10%. Unity Software, 25%. eBay, 1,000. Microsoft, 1,900. Salesforce, 700. REI, 300. Wayfair, 13% of staff. TikTok, 60. Even old TikTok, Mark. Riot Games, 11% of staff or 530 jobs. SAP, the software company, 8,000. UPS, 12,000. Square, 1,000. Regions Bank, 20,000. And American Airlines, about 650, just to name a few. Now, why am I highlighting this? Okay. Not all of this news is bad for the economy. The silver lining is that there is still, as of the last report, Mark, 8.7 million job openings. That number peaked at 12 million at the height of the issues during the pandemic. As the labor market normalizes, so should inflationary pressures on wages. This is the key part. Okay. That pressure that employers felt to raise wages in order to keep staff from leaving. Employers, for the most part, passed that on, that higher cost of doing business through price hikes in their product or service. So I think a couple of things are going to happen here as the year goes on. These number of job openings are going to come down. 
before the pandemic, there were about 7 million job openings. My two cents, we're probably going to get there sometime in the second half of the year. So what's going to happen is as people get laid off, there's plenty of job openings right now, generally speaking, where that that excess uh, capacity is going to get absorbed by the system. But these job openings are going to come down and you're going to see more of uh, the power relationship between employer and employee is going to head more towards back the employer. And I think it's going to actually help this inflationary issue we've had the last couple of years. My last comment is if I'm the Fed, you got to understand that rate cuts have a delayed effect on the economy. I wouldn't be sitting around on my hands too long. Uh, I think at worst it needs to be the May meeting that they start the cuts. If it were me, I would do March. I wouldn't mess around with this. Um, but I think that you're seeing companies getting by with with less. They're investing in technological innovation. Mark your comments. Uh, no, I think it's you know the first time, which I think is a good thing because I think we should continue to you know challenge the the nagr the the narrative. I think maybe one of the the criticisms are us or people in our industry is we're always we're always bullish, right? And not a lot of us get bearish um, too often. But you know, this is something that is worth is worth watching because even though you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a ton of layoffs. It's still some pretty big numbers. I mean, Citibank twenty thousand. That's not that's Regions, not Regions twenty thousand. You're seeing them, yeah. So, um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, just something to note. You might see some headlines on this, ladies and gentlemen, as the year goes on. Next thing, you're going to start hearing about supply issues again. I hope I'm wrong about this. So this is a post by Andreas Steno of Steno Research on January 28th, Mark. Jenna will put up this chart for our YouTube viewers. I would highly recommend this uh, in our show notes for our traditional podcast listeners. Uh, Mark, re remind our uh, listeners how they can access our notes, please. Uh, yeah. So uh, you can go to uh, Twitter at Jessup Wealth or Facebook or LinkedIn Jessup Wealth Management uh, to access these. Um, and we have some uh, some nice things actually coming up with show notes, hopefully later this year. So throw out a little teaser for people. Love that. So this chart you're going to see goes back, Mark, uh, to right before COVID, um, right at the beginning of 2020. And it's the number of container ship crossings through the Suez Canal. Oh, I think God. it's no not this I again. Think, yep, I think it's no secret that um, there's shipping issues right now in the Middle East and the Red Sea, and and what you're seeing is the number of ships that are now crossing uh, through the Su through the uh, Suez Canal is literally at 11 when it used to average in the low hundreds. Um, you virtually have the situation worsening, no container ships, soon no dry bulk and no mid-sized tankers either. It's going to prolong shipping. It's going around the Horn of Africa right now until they can get, you know, a, a sense or control on this. Uh, I know the U.S. is trying to get uh, other nations involved. The reason I'm bringing this up is not politically. I'm bringing this up from a business standpoint of supply chains. The last roughly 12 months if a company said, oh, we missed earnings because of supply chain issues. No, you just had very poor management. That, 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 that excuse worked a couple years ago. Unfortunately, they might have some excuses for missing on supply chain because literally the Red Sea shut down and this data point proves it. The interesting thing for me from a geopolitical standpoint is Egypt gets a majority of their revenue through the, through the, uh, the fees for tankers to go through the Suez Canal. You want to talk about a country that is motivated to get things back to normal. If any country in the world is, 
they are. Any comments, Mark? Yeah, this. I mean, this uh, pretty bad timing, right? Because we 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 seem to have inflation under control right now, and yep. this would uh, this would not be not be ideal. <laughs> uh, you know, I think we've talked about it before that you know the the worst case scenario is inflation comes down and then right as it's bottoming just skyrockets back up and we've seen that in the past in the u.s economy um so hopefully they get this figure out what are they attributing this to just the conflict in the middle east right now yeah it's the um uh, some militants that are um associated with iran loosely it seems from yemen that are attacking uh these ships and they're um they're wanting in essence money to release them so Mm -hmm. um, it kind of seems to be the the mo right now yeah i'm glad you brought it up because this is the first time i've 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 heard about this so um yeah yeah not ideal but definitely yeah it's like in essence the suez canal is shut down right now and again if you look at the um you know you can track flights you can track ships everything's just going around the horn of africa right now it's going from you know asia around the horn and uh and up all right next my last thing and this is very spot on in my opinion uh our friend jc peretz had a post on january 26th mark you ready quote i totally agree with charlie munger when he told warren buffett if people weren't wrong so often we wouldn't be so rich and uh jc says it's so good so true betting on humans making poor choices is much easier than pretending you know something that the market doesn't Mm -hmm. and the reason i want to highlight this is now that the market is calmer compared to what we were dealing with in 2022 i want to remind our listeners and viewers guess what a sell-off and a correction is probably going to happen sometime this year. A good five, maybe even 10, 15% is going to happen sometime this year. Oh, and, and, you, and I wouldn't be, not to interrupt you, but I wouldn't please. be surprised if we're starting that right now. Because again, if you look back at data, typically, you know, the year or election years start off decent in January. And then there's a correction in February or March before things start to get better in Q2 and into Q3. So not saying it's going to happen, but just be don't be shocked if we go through uh, a couple week period or, or over the next month and a half or so where the markets kind of stink. Yeah. And what's going to happen is always in these corrections, you're going to have the everyone come out of the woodwork, the naysayers. Oh, this is the beginning of the next fill in the blank. People are going to make poor choices, deviate from their plan. They got a long term investment time horizon, but they're going to try to time this correction and get back in. And the point I'm trying to make is don't fall into those traps as much as possible. Be looking at why you're invested. What is your time horizon? What is your risk tolerance? And when you are making those decisions, you have to accept that these corrections are going to happen. They will. And they're not fun going through them. The problem is, is people associate the pain of 22 as an example, that every sort of market correction or sell-off is going to be that deep and take that long to recover, which is not true. So that is my intellectual wisdom I'm passing along for the day. (laughs) Matt's intellectual wisdom. We might have to make that a... uh... (laughs) <laughs> a regular topic on the on the show on the going podcast? forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Well, thanks, Matt. I will. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to you and Taylor. I'm going to get out of here um, so Taylor can go over the financial planning topic of the week. Um, but as always, thanks for uh, all your great information, and I'll be back with everybody next week. Look forward to it, Mark. All right. Welcome on the podcast, Miss Taylor Ledbetter, fan favorite, paraplanner, wealth advisor here at Jessup Wealth Management. She uh, pins a, um, a monthly column on our website, jessupwealthmanagement.com, with uh, financial planning tidbits. And we had the blessing of having her on the podcast every once in a while that continue to share different wisdom. Taylor, how you doing? What's on deck this time? Yeah, I'm good. So today I want to talk about if you're maxing out your 401k, um, what you should do with any extra money. Because that is a question I get quite frequently is like, I've ma maxed out my employer plan. You know, what's the next step or where do I go next? Love it. Should be a good topic. Yeah. So I'm going to be referencing an article that I found on um, a website called PlanCorp. And it's just called maxing out your 401k. Okay. So as a reminder, um, the contribution limits do change every year slightly. So in 2024, if you are 50 or younger, um, the most you can put into a 401k is $23,000. Okay. And if you are above age 50, you're eligible for a catch-up contribution, and that amount is 7,500. Yep. So if you're older than 50, the most you can put in is about 30,500 in 2024. So what I really liked about this article is instead of diving into all of the different accounts you can establish, it talked about just what personal finance areas should be pretty set in place first before going over to other investment accounts. Okay, makes sense. So some of these fundamentals I'm about to go over, they're going to sound really basic, but they're very important. I agree. So if you're maxing out your 401k and you're looking to put additional money elsewhere, um, I think the first thing you need to look at is do you have an emergency fund set into place? So I know I hear um, three to six months is the general rule of thumb. I think that if you're a two income household, three months of living expenses is fine. Um, if you are a single income household, I think you need about six months of expenses saved away. Mm -hmm. Well said. Um, yeah, and preferably, you know, if you I do have an emergency fund established, you know, setting that up and maybe a high yield savings account or some type of money market fund, because hopefully, you know, that money's just going to sit there and you don't need it for anything. So might as well earn a little bit of interest, you know, while you can. Yeah, my kind of two cents for people is, I know you see this two boots on the ground, you know, our younger um, individuals tend to have not enough in savings. And I see that older individuals and i'm going to specifically say individuals say over the age of 55 tend to have too much in savings relative to their total liquid net worth and the reason i talk about that is just opportunity cost you know if you're going to keep that level of cash of your liquid net worth not invested 
and you have inflation just eating away at that money, and it's mm-hmm. like that for you know five, ten, fifteen years. I think you really need to sit down and analyze that. But generally speaking, not enough Americans have adequate emergency funds, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and I think you know with interest rates being at a higher point recently, I think a lot of the high yield savings accounts um, are earning around four, maybe five percent, but that's not normal. <laughs> so that's no, not, not. going to last very and most long. Most likely. Yeah, exactly. Good point, Taylor. They're going to come down. I, you know, most likely, uh, not guaranteed. Mm-hmm. The interest rate is probably going to come down. So will the rates of those money markets, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And yeah, yeah, so just to add to your point, you know, that's why you really shouldn't keep over that three to six month threshold. Roger that. Um, this article also said that the emergency fund you do build up in your late 20s might not cover your expenses as you get into your 30s and 40s. So just a reminder to reevaluate the balance that you are keeping on the side because your needs are going to change over time. Yes. So I think the emergency fund is probably the most important, you know, if you don't have that established. Um, So the next idea this article threw out was just having the appropriate insurance coverage. And I think this is an area that is overlooked um, because, you know, hopefully you'll never have to use the life insurance as long as you're working. life insurance or disability insurance, but I think those are very important important areas that you really need to have in place. Um, I recommend about 10 times your annual salary in life insurance. Every family's needs are going to be completely different, but you have to think about, you know, if you have a mortgage, would your spouse be able to continue on with that payment? Um, If you have kids, are they going to go to college? Do you need to have money on the side for that? So that's why I say about 10 times your annual salary and life insurance. I think that's a good rule of thumb. I really do, especially those with uh, financial dependents, um, like a, a spouse or children. I think that's a spot on general, very good generalized rule, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just adding on to that, I think disability can get overlooked a little bit after you go through the health insurance with your employer and maybe getting some life insurance. Um, I I did see a statistic one time, I can't remember the exact stat, but it was something about you're more likely to go on disability than you are Mm -hmm. to have your life insurance paid out, at least while you're working. So I think it's very important to have adequate coverage on the disability side too. Love that. Real quick, I got a little tidbit for our listeners and viewers. There's a really good uh, website. It's called lifehappens.org, lifehappens.org. And they have a really good life insurance needs calculator that I think is very basic. It's a series of seven questions. And it generally says, hey, in order to properly cover you with all the things that are important to you and the people who are financially dependent on you, this is how much life insurance you need to ask questions such as your income, debt levels, uh, marital status, relationship status, kids, etc. So if you're looking for kind of a and I think who funds that site is the is the life insurance industry. So at least you kind of know who who's backing that, but not a bad calculator. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. And not everybody needs life insurance. I mean, if you're not married, you don't have any financial dependents, maybe you don't even, maybe you don't own property, you know, there's no reason to have it. So, you know, well using said. a calculator like you just suggested is another well good reason. Yeah, we come across people that have all this group term, but they have no financial mm -hmm. dependents. They have no debt. It's like, mm -hmm. we'll save some money here. Yeah. Don't need to pay all those premiums. <laughs> yeah. Um, so next, the article talked about limiting your bad debt. If you already have your emergency fund set up and you have adequate insurance coverage, this is just another idea um, if you have a lot of that bad debt. So specifically the high interest debt, most likely that's going to be credit cards um, for the most part. Because um, if you're carrying a huge load of bad debt with a very high interest rate, um, that can really impact your savings down the line. Um, so you can should consider prioritizing that debt repayment first. Agreed. And then let's see. So next, the article goes on and talks about the accounts. So maybe you do have those those basic fundamental fundamentals covered. Um, it talks about contributing to a regular traditional IRA and then a Roth IRA. So I know we talk about these two types of accounts pretty often. Um, so we'll just start with the traditional IRA. Obviously, this is a pre-tax account. Um, if you're maxing out your 401k, chances are you you might be more of a high income earner mm -hmm. so with a traditional ira you do get that tax deduction for your contributions which will be very helpful come tax time but something that is very important to point out and i don't think this is talked about too much if you are an active participant in your employer plan, so say you contribute to a 401k, and maybe you also contribute to a traditional IRA. If you file married filing joint and your income is above 136,000, you cannot deduct any of your IRA contributions. Correct. If your income is between 116,000 and 136, you'll receive a partial deduction, mm -hmm. but to receive the full deduction, you cannot make more than 116 grand. Yep, and it's prorated in that middle range based upon where you're at with it. Right. Yep. So that that's the downside again if your income is above these thresholds. Um but you can also do a, a Roth IRA contribution instead. Um, the downside to the Roth contributions is that they're not tax deductible. That advantage comes later on during retirement because withdrawals are completely tax free. Yep. Now, there's no rule about if you contribute to a 401k, if that affects your Roth contributions, that doesn't exist with a regular Roth IRA. But again, if you are a high income earner, um, there are income limits when contributing to a Roth IRA. So if you are married filing joint, 
you have to make under 240 grand. And if you're single, you have to make under 161 grand to be eligible to make Roth IRA contributions. Um, so if you're under these limits, I know I kind of said this earlier, maybe best to just contribute to a traditional IRA instead, because um, again, that's tax deferred. So a lot of that's really just going to depend on how much money you're making to decide which one's the better option. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then the last idea this article threw out was contributing to an HSA. Um, I do think HSAs are great. I don't think they take precedent over contributing to a traditional or a Roth. That's just my opinion. I think if you have a little extra cash to do maybe an IRA and an HSA, that's great, but I wouldn't choose an HSA over, you know, a retirement account. I agree so, with that. Yeah, so just a couple criteria is that to contribute to an HSA, you do have to have access to a high deductible health plan. Yep. Um, contributions are tax deductible, earnings grow tax free, um, and withdrawals are also tax free as long as the funds are used for um, health care expenses that are qualified. If you're older than 65, you can withdraw funds for non-medical expenses completely penalty-free. That penalty is 20%. Um, but again, if it's for a non-medical expense, you will pay taxes on that withdrawal. And it'll be considered ordinary income because someone will ask that. <laughs> we, know, <laughs> we, we know our viewers. Yeah, it's ordinary income for, for, for anything above that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a good add on. Good catch. <laughs> and the other thing is you can invest now a lot of HSAs where in the past that wasn't the case. It was just like in a savings account or cash or money market type of equivalent. A lot of these custodians now are offering you because the money could sit there for years and years. There are a lot of investment options. I'm starting to see kind of like a 401k, you know, mutual mm -hmm. fund options. You know, you're starting to see that more and more with these HSAs. Mm hmm. Yeah, I wonder how um, aggressive the investment options would be. I'm sure it's different everywhere you go, but. Yeah, yeah, I've, I see them look just kind of like a, a normal 401k menu, believe it or not. It's kind of what I normally kind of see. Yeah, that's great. I mean, he, that, that's a huge advantage right there. Yeah, especially if you have the money there for a long time. I mean, I got people that will literally just save and save and save in these HSAs and, hey, I'm going to tap into this slowly in my retirement for my healthcare, um, you know, expenses, another account to tap into. and. If you can have that discipline and not need that cash flow for the expenses while you're working, more power to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, that was pretty much all the important points um, this article pointed out. I agreed with everything for the most part, so I thought it would be an interesting topic to bring up on the podcast. Great job, Taylor, as always. Wonderful topic. Um, switching gears briefly, um, want to talk about our podcast. You know, if you want to create your own podcast, definitely check out our hosting site that we use called Blueberry. That is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. And you can use promo code Jessup Wealth. That's all lowercase Jessup Wealth to get your first month of Blueberry podcasting hosting for free. You can use and choose the ideal plan for you. Use their hosting estimator on their website. Again, first month free using the promo code Jessup Wealth, all lowercase, no spaces. So as we sign off on the podcast this week, episode number 237, 
Taylor, any final thoughts of wisdom this week? Um, I, I think you and Mark really covered some good market research in this podcast, so I think a lot of the viewers are going to enjoy some of the stats you go over. Um, but yeah, no additional comments from what you and Mark talked about today. Perfect. Well, we're in the middle of earnings season, ladies and gentlemen. You see some major moves in stocks. It's probably because they just reported quarterly earnings. Uh, you know, market has had a good move the last three or four months. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if it took a breather here in February. Uh, I don't think it's the end of the world. Um, just personal opinion. So keep listening. Uh, thank you for listening to episode number 237 of the Independent Advisors podcast. We'll be back next week with episode number 238. Myself, Taylor, Jenna, Mark, we thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.